yes, you need a botanist and a chemist and an MBA, but you need the sociologist because this is this hemp industry has the potential. I am not going to oversell it here. It has the potential in many ways to resurrect an American economy. It genuinely does. It can bring farmers back to bear. According to Forbes magazine, legal sales of cannabis in the U.S. hit a record $17.5 billion in 2020. With a job growth projected to increase 161% by 2029, there's a clear need for educated employees to work in a variety of cannabis-related fields. Today on Tartan Talks, we welcome Dr. Sam Claster from Edinburgh University's Sociology Department. We're going to talk about the cannabis industry and how it's changed over the last five or 10 years and the projection for the future. What is legal? What do we still need to know about cannabis and the cannabis field? We're also gonna talk about Edinburgh University's new cannabis science program, where undergraduate students, master's level students, and industry experts can continue their education to learn more about the science behind the cannabis industry. We're also gonna talk about the hemp industry and how it could change the American economy as we know it. Thank you so much for joining us here today on Tartan Talks. We have all of the information we talk about in the show in the show notes, so be sure to check that out and learn more about the cannabis industry. Here's Sam Claster on today's episode of Tartan Talks. This is Tartan Talks, a podcast from Edinburgh University. I'm your host, Christopher LaFuria. Each month, we'll take a look at individuals who make Edinburgh an exciting, diverse, and profound place to discover your passions. All right, thank you so much for joining us today on Tartan Talks. We have an episode here that's been high on my list of podcasts that I've wanted to record. We're here with Dr. Sam Claster from Edinburgh Sociology Program. We're going to be talking about the cannabis industry. We're going to talk all about cannabis science, the booming industry that we see in front of us, and what we're doing here to educate people about the myths and facts behind cannabis, some of the job outlook that we have, and how it can impact the local economy and the local workforce. So thank you so much, Sam Claster, for joining us here today on Tartan Talks. Thanks for having me, Chris. Stoked right. to be here. Sounds good. So first off, uh, you teach from a sociological aspect, but you're also big into the, the cannabis industry through your own research and through some of the things you learned about in academics. What first got you interested in learning about cannabis and learning about the business prospects and so forth? Yeah, well, actually, Chris, it goes really far back in my undergraduate training at Edinburgh University. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but when I was an undergrad, uh, a good friend of mine, a psych major, I was a social major, uh, we actually developed um, a survey where we showed a vignette, a picture um, of a, you know, your average, he was a friend of ours, a 20-year-old college student, uh, holding what would presumably be a large uh, doobie or joint. Uh, and we created a survey and we went to Amsterdam. We connected with faculty members at the University of Leiden, uh, just north of Amsterdam. We collaborated with faculty members here uh, in the psychology and sociology department, and we ran a study that looked at international uh, differences in perceptions. As you can imagine, it was undergraduate research, but the data bore out that while the Edinburgh, and, and mind you, this is 2002, spring of 2002, um, the data bore out that while the American students or the Edinburgh students were actually more likely to um, show usage on the survey that they used, 
they had much less positive and, in fact, statistically significant um, negative viewpoints of users. And so this goes back to my undergraduate uh, research and um, in the last three years talking to industry professionals, watching what's going on in these small towns, looking at legislation across, across the country, recognizing that this is going to be one of the most booming industries over the next 20 years. There is a place for higher education uh, in this, an important role. But I would just say that that role, and it, it, you know, if we talk about the Edinburgh Cannabis Certificate later, what that education looks like um, is, is is certainly different than traditional models. Yeah, as as Sam mentioned, we uh, we're going to be discussing the industry certification that we have uh, that we're starting up here at Edinburgh. But before we get into that, I think uh, it would do our listeners a favor to kind of talk about the myths and misperceptions about the cannabis industry. So whenever people think of cannabis or hemp, Personally, for me, I think back to that commercial on TV when I was a kid of the frying pan and the eggs, yeah. where this is your brain, this is your brain on drugs, and then there's just this burnt-out person sitting on the couch. I learned it from you, Dad. I yeah, learned it, it from or, watching I learned, you. I learned it from watching it, you. It is burned into all of our brains. Exactly. But in the last couple, in the last couple decades, and even the last couple of years, the stigma behind the cannabis industry has kind of changed. We see a lot of uh, nationwide decriminalization, or at least a little. Uh, focus on, you know, making legal pathways to at least some sort of cannabis products. But it's not like we're standing on the corner handing out doobies to everybody. Um, we this is sure. a, a highly regulated, highly governmental oversight on on this industry. So talk a little bit about what's legal. What are we allowed to participate in? What what are some of the changes that you've seen over the last year from just say no to drugs to kind of like. Let's get a more of an understanding about these products and, and how they impact humans. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think the big idea is the notion that over the last 10 years, we've started states, uh, you know, Oregon in 2012 started to go medical or started to go wreck. Oregon's had medical uh, legislation back into the late, uh, the late 90s, right? And so with those states doing that, we have slowly increased our apparatus for research. Now, not until you have full federal legalization will we be able to do the scientific and medical studies that are necessary, but that has allowed that door to open. And what that door has done, it's allowed for uh, clinicians to start paying attention to this. It is it has allowed for some trial testing and starting to realize and reframe the argument from 1950s reefer madness, if you remember, yeah. right? The 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 spoofs and the scares and the ideology um, to a medical frame. We are literally reframing and understanding the use of the cannabis plant in the you know Western context. Uh, as not a criminal, right? We're removing the criminal frame and we're putting the medical frame on it. Understanding that there are still, um, and that's a whole other conversation, there are still licit and illicit industries. And, and again, I don't want to sidebar off of, of medical cannabis, but actually as recreational policies start to take place across the country, what people assume is that when there's a legitimate above-board industry, that the uh, illegitimate or illegal cannabis industry will die. In fact, that's not true. In fact, what it means is they both start to boom. So that's just more of an economic and, uh, and social pace of it. But yeah, uh, you know, with the medicalization, right, frame, 
becomes a new understanding cultural. And that does take time, but to be honest, Chris, I'd say that in this country, that part's been long overdue, right? Um, you know, you go back to stigmatization to African-American jazz musicians in the 20s being the, the, the reefer heads. There's a, a classic study in the, the 50s by sociologist Howard Becker called Becoming a Marijuana User. And then we see things change based on culture and based on race and based on social class. So middle-class white kids start smoking pot in their dorm rooms in, in Berkeley, right, in the 60s. And all of a sudden, there's outcry to not fully decriminalize, but the, you see penalties. So you can watch culture impact policy over a 100-year period. Um, and I think the most fascinating thing when you're talking about medical marijuana or hemp, right, um, industrial hemp, this stuff is something we used to do in this country. Like, we knew how to grow. This is what we did in the 1800s. So that legal frame was a product of modernization. And so now the medicalization and the transformation of those laws um, are an extension of it. And that's where we are today. And th that's a good uh, transitional point to my next question. And I know you understand things from a um, sociological background, but I think there's also some misperceptions on the differences between, you know, street marijuana, hemp, cannabis. So could you talk oh. a little bit about some of those major differences and kind of clear some things up for our listeners that might not understand? Yeah, I will absolutely butcher it because it's taken me two years of talking to industry professionals and clinicians and, right, and getting my head around this. I'm using cannabis as an umbrella term right, that would include medical marijuana, and then I'll use marijuana to kind of separate out. Yeah. Now we're talking about something that is consumed or, you know, medical marijuana, and interestingly enough, may not have THC. It may just have CBD, right, which is not the controlled substance. Um, but then there is hemp. And so when you hear somebody say hemp, they probably mean industrial hemp. So now we're talking about fiber, right, though they may say they're growing hemp for CBD, which makes it not marijuana because there's no THC. This is not clean, and I'll be honest with you, this is why I'll be excited to talk about the content experts that we have uh, teaching the courses in the Cannabis Cert because the, I will leave it to the psychologists, the botanists, and the botanists, right, to really... The science folks. <laughs> yeah, nail this down. But the business folks as well, because you're right, this is a matter of labing, labeling and policy, and it's really important, right? We're calling it cam Cannabis... Um, because that is the proper name, that, that's its biological taxonomy, right? Um, marijuana, more of a, of a cultural term, right? But when people, industry insiders, say hemp, they're usually going to talk about hemp fiber or hemp for the procurement of CBD, right? Which is another interesting conversation because of the Hemp Act of 2018 allows people to grow hemp for either of those reasons, fiber or for the production of CBD oil and treatments without THC. The rule, as I think you know, um, is less than, I think, 0.03, right, percent THC. Uh, and, and I don't want to go off here, but I'll tell you that I went to um, a meeting with a number of people about hemp in Newcastle in the fall of 2019. There was somebody from the Pennsylvania Department of Agriculture. There was a state trooper. There were farmers. And what they were trying to do, Chris, is get people into the hemp industry. We did this in the 1800s. Yeah. The United States, in, in Pennsylvania and Kentucky, are turning their tobacco farms into hemp farms. We need new industry. Our labor markets are changing. So this, this goes well beyond cannabis. But to the point about the 0.03% and where this all gets murky with legislation is they asked the state trooper, like, 
I don't want to get into this industry, right? Farmer, Farmer Ted is sitting there, and he's like, this, this sounds great. I don't trust it. I'm not going to invest my farm. I'm not going to get into it. What if the police come? Because I'm at 0.04%, and they took a sample, and the state trooper said, well, we've got bigger fish to fry. Well, that's great. But Farmer Ted's sitting there saying, that's not a guarantee, and I don't know if the feds are coming. So we're still in a Wild West area, almost a, an early Wild West with hemp, which is ironic because 100 years ago— 100 years ago, we, we were growing we were, hemp. We were a world leader, right? um, along with China, ironically enough. Um, but now um, we're at this restart. And I will tell you that the cannabis industry is the same. When I've talked to, I've talked to, you know, professionals over a dozen different Pennsylvania cannabis or, or, um, companies, and they'll tell you, this is a hard business. And a lot of it is because the regulations are so tight right now, because of what you're talking about, because of the transformation over a couple decades, and particularly the last decade of the stigma of rethinking cannabis's place in society. Uh, as you can imagine, here it is. So I was talking um, to the person developing our policy class. Her name is Corinne Ogrodnik, um, and she works at uh, My Tree uh, Medicinals in Pittsburgh. And she said that she had a conversation with somebody, mm, I'm going to butcher this, who works with, I think, nuclear waste. And the comment that her colleague in nuclear waste said was, you are twice as regulated as we are, right? Yeah. Like it was like you, you, so that fear and the concern of the legality and the politics to play are resulting in these very tight regulations, which are great on the safety side of things, um, but they also are creating incredible obstacles for the growth of the industry. That makes sense. Yeah, the, the literal growth of the industry. The, the literal, the, 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 the growing part of it and also expanding. That's right. And also, I, I feel like from a biological standpoint, if tobacco farmers are able to replant uh, hemp or other products, it kind of like diversifies their offerings. It makes their soil richer. It, it benefits the farmers as well. So the farmers kept talking about crop rotation, crop, crop rotation, rotation and, and how important it is, right? Yeah. So you, yeah, you see a lot of wine vineyards in California that are suffering because all they're doing is growing grapes and grapes and grapes. And once you uh, exhaust that soil, what mm -hmm. are you going to do when you're not rotating your crops? So at least this gives farmers another option to make their soil healthier and to make their farms more viable in the long run, yeah. which I think was one of the goals of the Farm Act of, of 2018 is to help farmers out. But this, I, I feel like, would be a huge benefit to to the the farmers that are staring at their crops saying, what am I going to do? How am I going to make money? Well, and, and that's the interesting thing, right, is that, you know, when we're talking about this and farmers, we're more talking about CBD oil production or industrial hemp and fiber. And again, an industry that really needs to grow. Um, you know, let's do a podcast in a year, and let's get. I have a joke for you: a material scientist and a and a you know a, a qualitative sociologist and, and an economist walk into a bar, you know, to uh, it, it's it's not really a joke, but they right. Th th this is who the next podcast needs to be, and this is what I'd love to do at Penn West to so say, wait a minute, you know, why are we not out in the field talking to farmers, talking to police, talking to politicians, talking to the Pennsylvania Department of Ag? and helping create the links in this new industry, right, that it needs to grow. So to your point, right over here is Kelton Farms. They've been growing hemp for two years. Um, um, if you look at the stores here in Edinburgh and in Erie County, you'll see, I don't remember the name of their brand, but um, Troyer. Troyer's been doing hemp for two years. Now, both hemp and Skelton are doing it all for um, CBD oil, but in time right? Fiber production. And again, you need a material scientist. You need an engineer from Cal to come in here and tell you how 
not all plastic can re- be replaced by hemp, but it's far more sustainable. And there is, you know, 60, 70% of uses for plastic we can use. And I've had a, an engineer say, Sam, we should be sealing concrete with it because it's more elastic and we should be fueling cars with it. And of course, our clothes should be made of it. And or maybe fixing again, this our is roads a... that have potholes. Well, so you, it, it, could, you could seal potholes, be more durable. That's right. That's yeah, and, right. And I think Feel... what you just mentioned here with the qualitative sociologist and mechanical engineer, everybody getting into a room, I think that kind of reflects the industry in general because there's, there's, there, there are not too many industries that have that sort of multidisciplinarian uh, like you have you know every you have the education aspect of it, you have chemistry biology botany you also have sociology and business and economics there are so many different fields that impact this one industry so i think once we get to the adequate regulation part of it and we get to breaking the stereotypes this is a way for people of different backgrounds to come together for a new industry that could have a positive impact it- it on is. the whole of region. It is, and I'll tell you the number one lesson. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna take off my sweatshirt and give you my my shameless plug. Right, this is uh, from uh, my friend Laura uh, Gunchen, who is the GM of Calypso Industries, um, um, and it is run by Erie Management Group. They have been phenomenal in uh, in this uh, in support for this program. They've actually given a financial contribution to get the courses uh, up and running, the bio and the site courses. So a thanks to Erie Management Group and to Calypso and to the Edinburgh University Foundation and Chuck Scalise uh, for the first pilot program, which I'll talk about in a bit, is running this spring, in fact. But when I started doing this, Chris, so I literally, I took that qualitative approach. I went tabula rasa. Like, I have my presumptions, but I just started going to industry professionals and doing what I will say. Higher ed has been accused of not doing for far too long, going to industry and asking the open question. And and I'm getting back to an earlier point you made. The thing that fascinated me was I was talking to Laura Calypso and I was talking to um, her main operations manager, Adam, and he said, I'm I'm from cereal. I produce cereal. So what I learned in my point, Chris, is that this is more advanced manufacturing than it is Farmer Ted, yeah. when we're talking about highly regu- regulated indoor grow operations that I can't even get a camera in to create a video for the cannabis policy course to show people the inside because the regulations are that yeah. tight. But learning, listening to him say, really, we're creating pri- – every company is creating pri- proprietary technology. We're learning new things. Um, we're all from different industries. Packaging's a major part of this. It really, really speaks to your point. And, and I think, I think that's kind of like a temporary catch twenty-two because this is an industry where developing a product that's kind of like, you know, uh, a food or beverage. We have a lot of these, you know, shipping, management, marketing. You have uh, all all these. Uh, infrastructure things that are already in place in other industries. You have supply chain. You have all these things, but you also have the regulations, which could be a stumbling block, but it also serves as a peace of mind to people that are reluctant to engage in the conversation about cannabis. They they kind of look at this. They kind of trust the regulation side of it more than the the farmers and manufacturers behind it because they need that kind of seal of approval to say like, hey, I'm not doing anything illegal. This is something that's going to be you know, allowable. So it, I feel like you sort of almost need that temporary 
status, but hopefully in the long term, the regulations kind of wise up yeah. and, and to use a pun to grow with the industry as well, to, to develop yeah. and evolve to what the, what the industry needs as well as what the consumer would. Yeah. I mean, look, if we're talking about a multi-billion dollar industry, that's going to, you know, that's not even going to peak till 2030, then what that means is, this is the best way to, to explain it to people. The cannabis industry needs all the things other industries need and more. They need accountants and they need financiers. And again, with the high, more than other industries, with the regulations on packaging and because it is medical and you're talking about confidentiality and privacy, the packaging is all wrapped up in that, right? So the packaging itself is a multi-billion dollar industry, right? If you're looking for a new, uh, a new place to go, uh, you know, or a new industry to start. And so they need chemists, yes, and botanists, of course, right? But they need people that understand advanced manufacturing. Yeah. They need engineers. Again, they need people in finance. Don't forget about us communications marketing. Part uh, too. Listen, <laughs> they need communications marketing as much or more than anybody right now because it is a difficult industry. It's a contentious industry. The branding is is um, more important, be, right, because of the that context. And you know what else they need? I'm going to plug social. They need community outreach organizers. Yeah. They need they need to pair their PR, and this is a fascinating piece of this, with explaining what they're doing. So if you don't mind, I'd like to talk a little bit about Pennsylvania's medical marijuana legislation relative to other states. Yeah, let's talk about Pennsylvania. To kind of talk about, okay, so where I, you, know, you asked me where I start with this. Where I really start with this is being an undergraduate sociologist, understanding that the war on drugs has historically disenfranchised you know, uh, racial and ethnic minority groups uh, since uh, Dick Nixon thought it was a good idea and passed it to Ronald Reagan, right? Uh, it, it, this goes way back. So what a lot of state legislation, newer state legislation that's coming out. So for example, two years ago, Illinois rolled its um, legislation out on the heels of um, Massachusetts. And Massachusetts and, and, and then Illinois legislation are progressively getting better at what I'm going to talk about, and that's having DEI, or diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives built into them. In other words, the legislation for Illinois actually reserves a certain amount of licenses for dispensaries or GPs, those are grower processors, right, um, for racial minority groups. So there's ownership in it. Okay, now not to slam PA too much, but to put it on the table, uh, Pennsylvania's legislation did not and does not do that. Now, it was before these initiatives started. Um, I would say that's no excuse. We need to do better. Um, and to be honest with you, Chris, that's kind of where this comes in. If we don't have legislation that is requiring that a certain amount of licenses go to historically disenfranchised groups, then we better create an access and pipeline for people to get into this into job yeah. and then into these jobs and to be a part of it. And then I'll, I'll put on my other hat that you know I wear. At some point, this industry is going to have a reckoning on labor and unionization. Oh, yeah. But I think that's down the road, and, and we'll save that conversation for another time. But it's really important, and it feeds into this, right? Like, if let's have that conversation. If you have a set of legal policies in a country that historically disenfranchise certain groups, and now you have legalization, and I'll just say it what it is, if big weed comes in, big white weed comes in, and large corporations with wealthy shareholders are getting all the profits, we have a problem. Right. So, you know, cannabis provides an opportunity, certainly. You see for, that happening with the for social change and social equity. You see that happening with the tobacco industry in the 90s and the the, uh, the beer industry. Um, you see a lot of, you know, 
white tobacco, white beer coming in and, and doing a lot of regulation and, and reaping all the profits of it too. So I think, you know, embedding the DEI into the process instead of just coming up to the end and say, oh, yeah, we should have some sort of DEI angle. What could we do? That's right. I think that's, you know, that sounds like a no-brainer. And you and you industry. see it like um, Green Thumbs Industries out of Chicago and they own Rise and look, they're a great company and they have these good green initiatives. And I, I, there are some of the people I've talked, I talked to to say, what does your industry need? What are the skill sets? Trying to genuinely, Chris, develop this curriculum from the ground up. Again, you know, I'm listening. I'm yeah. listening about the, the critiques of higher ed. Okay, that's cool. We can do that. We can do it. Um, and, and have that conversation. Yeah. So getting past the, the manufacturer supply chain and all that stuff, uh, the one question I have for you, which I think, I think you'll be able to provide a, a great answer, is who is cannabis for? <laughs> Let's talk about the end user. Like yeah. who, what, wh who benefits from, uh, aside from the business aspect of it, the job growth, who benefits from the product? So, I, I mean, <laughs> well, if you ask me later who the cannabis certificate is for, I will tell you cannabis is for everyone. As far as is ingestible, you know, or medical cannabis for everyone, no, but that's exactly why we have doctors and pharmacists and, and processes like we do with any, you know, any other illness and cure. So, I will tell you though, and again, um, you know, I'll plug it. Dr. Peter McLaughlin is developing the medical marijuana course. Pete has done 20 years of cannabinoid research in in Compton Hall, and part of it is the patient care side of it. So, glaucoma, yes, but it's so much more than that. So, the best way to look at this, Chris, is to look at each state's um, qualified conditions, right? But anxiety, the, but the list keeps expanding. So. Anxiety and, of course, physical pain and trauma. I had a friend that, that tore their shoulder two years ago and was able to get cannabis for that. I'm not saying it's easy at all. It is a very serious list. It is a restricted list. It's not long, but it does provide relief and treatment um, because of a number of properties uh, to a variety of illnesses. Again, physical pain to anxiety, but it, it has been uh, – I will give you a very personal note. My sister passed away three years ago of cancer, and she um, was in her 50s, and she had kids in her teens and 20s, and um, I will tell you that the quality of life she had with her boys and her one grandchild, the last two and a half years of her life, Chris, um, was absolutely due um, their ability to have medical cannabis in Massachusetts. So, well, thanks for sharing the story. Yeah, I'm when sorry you, to hear, but no, that's... it's okay. When you when you when you ask me, maybe I need to leave with that next time. Like, what got you into it? Maybe this didn't get me into my research before, but I have seen it. I have You've seen watched it. I've seen the impacts of of quality of life. Yeah, definitely. And and I think you know you see it a lot with military figures coming back from Afghanistan that are dealing with PTSD or extended trauma or pain from that. Because um, a lot of times, and I think. I don't know how much we want to get into like hypocritical issues in the United States, but a lot of people that are suffering from PTSD, you know, might turn to drugs or alcohol or right. tobacco products. Right. So I, I feel like when it's regulated, when it's legal, this could could kind of take the place of some of the more damaging impacts of maybe some other industries. Yeah, I mean, look, I, there's a couple of things there. One, you know, the government's doing psilocybin tests with vets now, right? To magic, you know, the chemical ingredient magic mushrooms. I, I, you know, we're doing that, and and they're starting to to claim that there's some benefit effect, uh, some positive benefits, uh, and and certainly that's a much more stronger psych sure. psychotropic substance. So absolutely, 
I personally know veterans that have medical marijuana cards for this very reason. Again, that's not to say that cannabis or that medical marijuana is for everybody. Sure. It absolutely is not. But are veterans a great class of individuals that you can identify as, as benefiting from it? Yeah. And again, I'm, I'm just going to give uh, – I'm going to expand on that and say the industry, right, sh should also be able to serve veterans. So, for example, if you look at the spread of the grower processors across Pennsylvania, yes, we should be working to educate and help create pipelines for African-American and Latino individuals in Erie and Philly and Pittsburgh and wherever else in the Commonwealth to get into this type of program and into this industry, absolutely. There are also an awful lot of displaced workers pre-COVID from the structural transformations in our own economy and now post-COVID with everyone questioning. Everyone. They're, they're everyone questioning. Their, the great, their, what was it? Not the Great Recession, but the Great um, Resignation. Yes, yeah, I just, resignation. I just, my students had to explain it to me about the, the whole original uh, Reddit post. But yeah, I mean, with all that going on and certainly with the fact that I, I don't have to provide a whole lot of evidence here for you to know that we've done a pretty not so bang up job taking care of our vets the last 20 years and when we, when we when we start to uncover that and take a look at it think chris about i'm from lock haven there's a grower processor i've talked to terrapin they're out of colorado but the, the, the guy went to penn state actually knew some friends of mine years ago <laughs> wild right connections look at lock haven just just look at the population and the demographics they've got this grower processor um terrapin does in avis pennsylvania you know, as this program starts to develop, I'm reaching out to the ROTC um, yeah. lead at Lock Haven and at Bloomsburg and well, Mansfield at, at the Commonwealth University, I should say. And, and, and we're going to have a conversation about why aren't we pipelining vets, not just into this program, but then into this industry. Yeah, that'd, that'd be really interesting. And I, and I think, you know, any time where we can take displaced workers, whether they're veterans, whether they're um, underrepresented uh, populations, you know, we're providing job growth, we're providing opportunity, we're providing training, and I think everybody can benefit, whether you're the end user or whether you're in the, in the process of, of creating the product. So you talked a little bit about the, the background and training people and training vets. So let's transition to the higher education and the education process of this. So um, this is a, an opportunity to plug the program that we have, the industry certification for a career in cannabis. So talk a little bit about the foundation of this program and how kind of it came to fruition from yeah. doing the research, talking to the industry folks, but also curriculum planning, which is probably one of the driest things you can think of, but also necessary to have yeah. you know, a program like this. So talk about you know the how this came about. Yeah, so honestly, I started cold calling industry. I went to Calypso, it's in our backyard, um, their Erie Management Group. Um, I had fabulous dialogues with them, and I just wanted to know where they saw education. Look, and a lot of people will tell you that there's a lot of the entry-level jobs that just require um, training, right? They want to train their own staff. This is new industry. Some of it uses proprietary technology. That doesn't mean, right? So those may be the entry-level, but that doesn't mean that they don't need botanists. They yeah. do. They need MBAs, again, right, in their finance. And so they need people with bachelor's and master's degrees and more, right? If I had a PhD in chemistry, Chris, I'd be honest with you. I'm not sure I'm sitting right here right now. <laughs> I might be working for a grower processor running a lab $350,000 a year. Uh, shout out to my, my, my chem colleagues that are, you, you know. on the front lines of that. Yeah, they're on the front lines of that. <laughs> and, and so I went around, and I, I talked to Terrapin, who is in Avis, Pennsylvania, and I talked to Pharmaceutical Rx, who is in Newcastle, and um, I talked to Green Thumbs Industry, which is kind of big weed out of Chicago, right, um, and, and Calypso, of course, and just started to say, what are your jobs? 
what are those positions? And again, completely inductively and genuinely, what are the skills I need? Then I had to work reflexively by going back to the faculty and say, okay, what kind of talent do we have and what kind of skills and what kind of things do we have? And then take that back to the industry. So it was working back and forth between faculty and industry. And I think that's maybe the model I'd love to share with my, my coll- all of my, yeah. my Edinburgh and Penn West colleagues is there's something to this. It takes time. It took an incredible amount of time um, to get there. But I started to do that. And started to identify that, okay, we need, they will need people with business degrees and botany degrees and natural products chemistry degrees um, and strategic communication degrees, right? Like, there you go. The, the journalism, that's right. <laughs> you got it. Yeah. Well, and so we'll need that. But what do they need at the front end? So in February um, of 2020, and it was strange because I couldn't figure out why people had masks on the plane to Boston, I went to the uh, National Industrial Cannabis Association. This is the leader uh, professional organization in cannabis in the country. And I, and I started to talk to the, grow, um, the growers and the different people in the industry kind of at a high level, right? This is an industry conference sure. where they're selling lights and tech and security companies and just like promote and, and, and you know, I met marketing. Individuals. And so I went at that conversation, but I talked to their education committee for the National Industrial Cannabis Association, and I showed him my curriculum. And he looked up at me, Chris, and he said, and his name was Chris, and I don't remember his last name. Good guy. Yeah, real good guy, right? And and, uh, he, he looked at me and said, you figured out how to get bits of basic education to the entry level workers. Yeah. I said, yes. That's what they've been struggling with. They were working with, I think, Colorado Pueblo on an associate's degree. There are lots of ways to take this. Do you make it a specialization within botany? Well, yeah, that's absolutely possible. But then aren't there business? So, so to your previous point, this is extremely interdisciplinary. And the entry-level jobs, most of them are in grower processors. Sure. But they could be in, in processing. So that means touch of chemistry background. It could be in... Um, uh, just the packaging, so you need some industrial operations background to a degree. It could be in the medical field. It could be at a dispensary. It could be at any level. Um, and so the idea was, how do we pair industry knowledge? Mind you, they're getting they're getting trained in all of these different jobs. Industry knowledge with scientific knowledge sure. that would at least allow someone to go in with some knowledge. So this is basically my pitch or my question to the the uh, grower processors, I said, if you had two candidates, two applicants for a job, all things the same, all things exact, exact same resume, right? But one person had the certificate, would you hire them? They said in a heartbeat. And I said, why? And, and of course, this is after I got the information from them, went to faculty. This is after a year and a half. I came back with my product, right? With my, my nine credit certificate. And they said, because they get the basic pieces Right, and I said, and so I'm playing devil's advocate on my own program, Chris. Right, and I'm like, okay, well, but someone is working in a grower processor. Do they need to know the medical piece? Or somebody's working, you know, for a doctor, or for you know, at a, a dispensary. Do they need to know the manufacturing? And this is just three. This is nine credits, and I don't mean to say just, but you know, it's it's a palpable program. It, you can get nine credit certificate in under six months. And they recognized the value of their employees 
understanding at least a rudimentary sense of the different parts of the industry and the way they connect because someone may start by getting a dispensary job. They may move into the finance part yeah, of that organization. Change it up a little bit. Yeah, they, they have people that are in packaging and they go, you know what? They'd be great on growing. That, that they, they don't have a botany degree, but they've been trimming bonsai trees for 20 years. I mean, honestly, this is what I was told. It was like, I said, who are your normal employees? They were like, cat ladies that trim trees. Sure. And like, so this is trying to understand where can formal education play a role, but more importantly, where can it give the appropriate amount of education and at what level? So, you know, so then the question becomes, who who's the cert for? Yeah. That, that's what was going to be my next question. Who is it for? Like, can you pick this up by taking three extra general education credits uh, in your undergrad? Or do you need a, a degree in business or something first? Or who who is this for? Like, who is this industry program for? Right. And, I mean, the, the, the fun part here, Chris, is where I get to say cannabis is for everyone. Cannabis right? is for everybody. Cannabis is for everybody. You heard it here first. I will say this. Is it for the 18-year-old that isn't sure about college? Absolutely. On two fronts. One. It gives you a leg up in a new industry for an entry level or, or, or higher job, right? But two, these are 100 level classes. So I'll give you an example of the, the medical cannabis class. You're getting basic neuroscience and some basic pieces you get from intro to psych and a little more of an advanced knowledge of that and then an understanding of patient care and the medical side of the industry. In the botany course, right, the agriculture, cannabis agricultural science, you're getting the basic botany. You're understanding cannabinoids in the medical course, and now you're understanding cannabinoids and its connection, right? Not, not from the brain chemistry side, but you're connecting those very principles and properties to understanding basics of botany. And then you learn about mites and, and, and disease and growing, and then you learn a little bit about that industrial growing. And then in the business course, right? You learn about a little bit of the history of cannabis policy, but then you start to learn about very specific Pennsylvania regulations. I will tell you when I said, what is the number one knowledge base that people need for this industry? They said, the regulations. Mm -hmm. This isn't to say that the other courses aren't just as important. It's just to say that, Chris, every state's regulations are completely different. And even the people implementing them are in the Wild West and unsure yeah. of them. Um, and so that's kind of how this cert works. It does create a well-rounded person. Um, it, but again, it's for people in coming out of high school. But what about the sociology major? Shout out to Zach, because he's a real person, uh, who works, just got a job at a dispensary, is taking the cert, and wants to advance in that industry, already loves the people he works for, and so can add to this. So is this for someone currently seeking a bachelor's degree? Absolutely. Is it for somebody that has a bachelor's degree and wants to pivot and upskill into a new industry? 100%. Absolutely. Is it for someone that's maybe already in that industry because they've been in finance, they have an MBA, but they want to know more about the industry and the different aspects, right? Of so like the, a continuing, continuing education. This is continuing just, education. Yeah. And, and so what I think is really cool about it is it is – access point at all levels. It is for somebody to upskill, somebody in their 40s or 50s or 60s even to upskill into new industry. It's for the 18-year-old uh, high school student. Again, I, I, I repeat, cannabis 
uh, the cannabis certificate is uh, for everybody. And you're you're talking nine credits, so that can be done within eighteen months. Uh, six six months. Six months. Under six months. Under six months. You, you can got it. Industry certification. You can. And the two cohorts. One, the first cohort. Again, um, thanks to Clipso and the Edinburgh University Foundation for allowing us to get the pilot underway. Started. Pete McLaughlin's course ends, I think, in a week, maybe a week after spring break. Uh, so seven week courses. 100 level, seven week courses. January starts the medical cannabis class, and then the policy class starts in March, right? When the medical class stops. So three successive, successive seven week courses, and then the policy course goes from March uh, into late May, right? Early June. That's the first cohort, and then in July there'll be another opportunity. So those courses are already filled and they're already running. July into the semester. And then the first seven weeks of the semester is the second course. And then the second seven weeks of the semester is the third course. So essentially, July to December, you can get a cohort. In January to May, June-ish, right, you can get a cohort. So Penn West essentially will run two six-month cohorts, nine credits, current or um, new students. And we have some marketing strategy, yeah. um, but that, the, the website is created and the flyer is ready. I am going to send a letter to every single grower, processor, and owner of a dispensary in Pennsylvania. And that's the cool part, Chris. Like, we're just starting with a nine credit cert. Are there other things to do? Yeah, I think there's an industrial operations certificate with my friends in engineering and manufacturing that you could couple with this. And then, right, maybe even create not just a certificate, but a certification in cannabis industrial operations yeah. that gets you closer to the associate degree level. And then, of course, we want to pipeline people into Cal's botany degree and Edinburgh's chemistry degree and, and Edinburgh Clarion. And, yeah, and our, our MBA degrees, yeah. So as you've said, the certificate program has already started at Edinburgh and on this campus. So have, have you talked to students or faculty members about their experience, or what are they saying about the program so far? Yeah, so far, um, I've talked to Dr. McLaughlin, who is nearly done with the course, and he has studied it for 20 years, but it was you know still the first time prepping. This is kind of his baby put in front of him. He says he's he's working really hard and, and staying out of the ahead of the students, that they love it. The reception, Chris, has been phenomenal. I have a wait list. That we're not going to have a hard time getting people into this. But again, that's why I'm so thankful for the opportunity to run the pilot so the faculty could really dial it in, get honest feedback, get the students' feedback, see where it need, the curriculum needs to make sure that it is accessible, see where they need um, more explanation. And so, so far, so good. From Dr. McGoggle, I've talked to students that have had the class. They love it. They adore it. And it's spreading like wildfire. And I know this because at least once to twice a week, I get a student inquiring. Um, oh, wow. about the, the cert and the courses. And again, we have the website and we have the flyers, but yeah, sure. in, in the show notes, I'll include a link to that website. There's more information so people can check it out awesome. uh, if you're interested. Um, so to wrap this all up, to, to kind of come full circle, whether it's the certificate program, the industry, the job growth, where do you see the cannabis industry in the next five years, the next 10 years? Where do you see, do you see major roadblocks with legislation and legalization issues, or do you see us kind of taking that next step and making this another big viable industry? Well, unfortunately, legalization on the federal level is going to depend on the politics of the time, sure. right, We, as, as anything is. Um, with that said, is it coming? 
written really soon? Yes. Have people said that for decades? Yes. Am I still confident in that assertion? Yeah, it is. And, and I think that that will change certainly some market conditions. But what I think you see is you'll see is an industry that's in its infancy that is going through a lot of growing pains because of the tight regulations and because of its political controversy, that not that you see the regulations loosen up. That's not going to happen. This is medical. This is human beings' health. This is serious stuff. But what you're going to see them doing is dialing it in, sure. right, and figuring out how this industry needs to operate and how it needs to um, be best. But I will say beyond medical cannabis, my eye is starting to, as we talked earlier, go to industrial hemp, Chris. I want to know what the carbon footprint is, what materials we can replace with hemp, uh, you know, how uh, sustainable and, pun intended, green, <laughs> this industry can be. Because when I went to Newcastle and I, I listened to a state trooper and a farmer and somebody from the Pennsylvania Department of Agricultural, uh, Agri Agriculture speak, I can't remember his name, but this is a gentleman that I can only categorize as a hemp historian. Hmm. He sold hemp souls. They're out of Hanover. Surprise, surprise. Uh, Pennsylvania, right, where oh, yeah. Snyder's and all the pretzels come from. So he's from Lancaster and, 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 and southeastern Pennsylvania area. And he was wild. And he had these slides. And not only did he show, like, the mechanical industrial uses, he showed the history. We did this in Pennsylvania. We grew hemp in the 1800s, and it was one of our most l profitable cash crops, not because of medicine or recreational ingestion of 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 the substance because of material. Now we can get into a fun political history of the Dow Corporation and <laughs> how plastics has run hemp aside and then maybe that's another podcast conversation. <laughs> but that's where this is going to me is to me, you know, when I said earlier, you know, yes, you need a botanist and a chemist and an MBA, but you need the sociologist because this is this hemp industry has the potential, I am not going to oversell it here, it has the potential in many ways to resurrect an American economy. It genuinely does. It can bring farmers back to bear. Now, we have to get away from, the, I did my PhD in South Dakota, and what I learned there was, you know, the serfdom of corporate farming. We've got to make this regional, and I, I will give this plug. I am happy to work with every single hemp and uh, cannabis industry provider, but do I really have a penchant for the Calypsos and the my trees and the organizations that are regional? Yeah, I do, right? As long as those big corporations, the big weed, are, are providing jobs locally and giving back through DEI initiatives, I am on board, and that is fabulous. But what I would like to see the hemp industry do is be a little more proactive, right, um, with making sure that workers, um, people from disenfranchised groups, and, you know, farmers and vets are really in with investment at the ground floor of that industry. Not um, just giving a little bit of face time to them, but actually getting them in, involved in the process. That's it. You got it. It can't just be a PR splash, you know, because it, we hired people. It, it has to be. And I'll tell you, there are companies that are leading the way. Again, MyTree Organics, I don't know if I said this, but this is African-American-owned. Um, I think there's some ex-stealers, right, involved with it. Their business model is, is, is built on social change, and I think that's fabulous stuff. That gives us some things to think about till our next podcast episode. So thank you so much, Dr. Sam Claster, Edinburgh University of Sociology, for joining us today. Uh, we learned a lot about the cannabis industry and the cannabis science. So I, I appreciate you taking time to talk to us today. Thanks for having me, and have a fabulous spring break. All right.